Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tanya. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee. This is episode 141. Today, we are talking about classroom instruments in the elementary music classroom. We'll also talk about our highs and lows from the teaching week, discuss some ideas in our No Better, Do Better segment, share a work smarter, not harder teacher tip, And in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying in and out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. So now it is time to share a high or low or both from our teaching week. (laughs) Tanya, (laughs) just giving you options. (laughs) Life is full of highs and lows. Yep. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go low because hey, I don't know. I, I I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. I'm struggling with that life work balance thing that people like to talk about. But um, what's that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really don't know. Anyway, um, as I have said in recent episodes, uh, me and my family we just moved. Plus, we had our oldest go to college. Um, things are happening. And plus, our youngest is now in high school. And um, I guess I underestimated what a toll it would take upon me and my family. This moving houses after living 20 plus years in one place. Anyway, I don't know why I thought it. I didn't think it was going to be easy. But I just I didn't realize it would just linger on. And I'm struggling because I am not, um, I'm not focusing enough on, well, anything really, but school in particular, I feel like I'm just kind of shooting from the hip. You know what I mean? Yep. I'm just, um, well, I mean, thankfully I've been teaching for many years. So while that's not horrible, it's not ideal and because I see students for one week and then those groups of students go away, those classes, and then I see a new group of students for another week, it's more tricky in planning because what I did Monday two weeks ago is going to look different unless I really did well of writing down changes I made and I'm not and I have a student teacher and it's not fair to her um that I am not more specific so anyway all that to say I'm struggling with the work-life balance plus yesterday I sat down and I was like okay I'm just gonna write out I'm just gonna do these two grade levels for the whole week I'm gonna write out you know my my short range plus my lesson plans And I can't believe how long things are taking me. Things are taking me forever. Like I've never taught before in my life because I get tied up in knots and I just need to um, buckle down and uh, get things done. And and, uh, things take me right now about five times as long as I initially think they should take. So I'm struggling. Yeah. And here it is, Labor Day weekend. And I've labored. And... (laughs) um, (laughs) have I had fun not really have I gotten anywhere with anything not really so I am both working too hard and not working hard enough yeah that's I am both neglecting you know all areas of my life plus 
indulging too much in, I don't know. Um, I don't know what I, I, anyway, I'm not very good at time management right now and things are frustrating. And um, we are still, we, we still spent like three hours moving stuff from our old house into our new house. Yeah. Yeah. yeah moving is no joke. You're right. Like, you know, it's going to be hard. And then when you're actually in it, it's like, oh my God. Yeah. And I every can't. time I think that we're like done, we're not done. I, we go back to the house and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot about the big purple couch. Anybody <laughs> want a big purple couch? You have to come get it. I forgot <laughs> about, um, you know, the dresser that I wanted to put on Facebook marketplace. I forgot about like that. that so the, the lovely thing is that we are keeping our house in Denver and we will be renting it out. But the not lovely thing is that means that we are not completely moved out, but we are mostly, but you know, we still have some things. And yesterday me and my husband were there for like two hours and we reached a point where I said, you know what? My back hurts. I'm tired. I'm cranky. We must leave. Yeah. So, so this is not about school, but it is about school because I'm also, yeah, I'm also uh, away from, you know, they say all the they's out there, you know, when we talk about work-life balance, it's never an equal balance, right? Because there's times in your life where personal life takes precedence. There's times in your life where professional life and, you know, it fluctuates, but when it's really tricky is when both things need more than 50%, (laughs) like the beginning of the school year sometimes needs more than 50% of your time, right? Professionally. But then when you're moving and you're putting your kids in college and that needs more than 50%. So then you're constantly giving 110, 120 and, or not finding the best, you know, I, all that to say, I hear you and I'm sorry. And that sucks. That's all right. You know, I, I just, um, and then I keep going to concerts because I bought tickets to all these red rock shows, like back in January, which should be a fun thing. Right. But it's just stressful because why are all the red rocks concerts I want to go to on Monday nights or Sunday nights? I'm going to be going to another one in a week here, which I was really looking forward to. And I still am. Um, but boy, that really is hard. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't get home till midnight. And then the next day is painful. Right. I I mean, I'm complaining because I'm going to concerts, but you know, anyway, Um, had I known all of these things all at once, you know, I should have, it's hard to know. It's it's really hard to know. And um, I'm trying to get things together. And, and the other thing is that like all of my resources, my, my school books and stuff, I finally like brought them up to the office where they will live and unpack I'm unpacking them because that's hard too is when I'm like hey I want to do such and such arrangement that I know I have in this notebook I can't find my notebook you know yeah oh okay anyway so please tell us what your high or low is for this teaching week (laughs) well I was gonna go low too um My low is just slightly different though. So my low has to do with the fact that I just don't see my kids enough and I knew it was going to happen and I can't complain because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But in my school, because we're big, we've had to go to basically four classes per grade level and we added 
library as a fourth rotation. So I just see my kids a whole lot less. And to add to the fun, we're only doing that second through fifth grade. So second through fifth grade is on a different rotation than kinder through second. I mean, kinder and first. Um, the one positive thing about that, though, is that like, it's not like all six of my grade levels, I have new lessons to prep all at the same time, rewrite. So it's like, I have four lessons to prep for second through fifth, all starting on the same day. And then, you know, K and one's on their own thing. So that does help with the planning piece, but man, it's, it's really messing with my brain. Like, oh, you I'm really on a new rotation to, with yeah. K and one, but I'm still trucking along with two through five, you know? That is tricky. It is tricky. Um, but just, you know, I was doing my, finally sitting down and doing my yearly plans and I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, there's just no way. And then you add, you know, wanting to do performances and wanting to do, other things, you know, field trips to the symphony and all this stuff. And I'm just really, I'm struggling and I'm frustrated. And, and again, I mean, we knew it was coming. We, we made the decision to do this over other options, like bringing in a traveling teacher who would have to teach in my room during planning, you know, because we don't have the space in our building. None of my teammates wanted to do that or really big class sizes because we combine, you know, four classrooms, <clears throat> excuse me, into three, you know, specials for lack of a better term classes so we went with option c which was a fourth rotation so positive is my class sizes are a lot smaller so then the idea is in theory i'll get through things quicker <laughs> in one lesson especially if i'm doing things that involve turn taking assessments that kind of stuff and i do see that um it does we things move along quicker within a lesson so i just need to capitalize on that um but in the meantime, it's just a little bit of a frustrating thing. Um, and I am still in the first week of school with one of my rotations. This is going to be week one. <laughs> I mean, technically I saw all my classes once. We did like a one day thing before we started our, our full rotation schedule. And we do a three day rotation. It's not a full week where I see the same class for three days and then I don't see them for nine days. So it's not a full week rotation which also helps, but it's still like, oh my gosh, I still have to do a classroom expectations and all that stuff a fourth time with classes starting up tomorrow. So oh, all that yeah. to say, um, I'm not pleased about that, but I'll get through it. It's fine. I just have to readjust and make it work. And it's time for our main theme, which is all about classroom instruments in the elementary music classroom. This includes barred instruments, um, small percussion instruments, instruments that we might use. So we thought we'd take some time to talk about how we use them, how we store them, when they come out, how is it different in a Kodai-inspired classroom than maybe it would be in a ORF-inspired classroom or you know, how they're used. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Carrie. Go. Um, yeah. No, let's, okay. Let's start with that last thing you just said, because yeah. I think, you know, we could just talk so long about this. So let's keep it brief. Um, but, you know, what is the difference? What's the mindset of how we use the instruments? And, you mm -hmm. know, there's no hard, fast rule here. It's just our own personal philosophy. We no, hear a lot of people. I, well, say, it's not a hard, fast rule, but it goes beyond a personal philosophy because I, I do think 
that most Kodai inspired teachers would agree with, well, what I'm about to say and what I think that you're about to say as far as when instruments are used and um, when, when people, when music teachers say, oh, I do Orth and Kodai. Right, exactly. And when we're going to really parse out what are the differences between an Orth uh, philosophy and a Kodai philosophy, this is one of the main things in an ORF centered classroom. And, and this is me speaking as someone who has not been through all the ORF levels. I've had some training, but not all of the levels, but in an ORF classroom instruments is one of the first things that students explore. Yes. Yeah. And I cut you off. So you, you go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say the exact same thing that this is kind of the rebuttal against the, I do all the things equally statement. It's not that you don't do tools from both philosophies, but it's, it's the order in which you present those things. So keep going. Yes. Keep going. Okay. So in an, in an ORF classroom, um, ORF said, let the children be their own composers. Right. And so a lot is taken from improvisation, improvisation in speech, improvisation in movement, and improvisation on instruments specific, well, lots of instruments. But when we people talk about ORF instruments, they are talking about the bard instruments. And, and this is very interesting because at CSU, one of um, two of our grad students did a um, lunchtime presentation on the history of bard instruments and this whole idea of let's go back to this terminology. Well, I mean, this is just part of their presentation, but the terminology of bard instruments as opposed to calling them ORF instruments because they are used in more than just an ORF classroom. Yes. Right. But they're that's a, a tiny, they're a tool. Right. And this is a tool. And so that was a little aside. But um, in a Kodai context, we are going to focus on singing, 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 singing and singing of folk songs, songs that have been in the repertoire, songs that are um, culturally, have cultural significance to the population that you're teaching, bard instruments and percussion instruments are layered on in the practice stage of any element. So during my first week teaching, my first five lessons of teaching any grade level, you're not going to see instruments happening in the first, second, or third lesson. But I try to make a point that during that first week where I see students, that we do get our hands on instruments, but it's definitely going to be later on because we are adding the instruments on top of our musical abilities, skills, and knowledge, right? And so in a Kodai inspired classroom, the instruments come in the practice stage. In an ORF-inspired classroom, instruments are going to happen a lot earlier, and there's going to be a different structure. It's not going to be necessarily within the context of known songs and chants. I mean, it can be for sure, but there's going to be more focus on improvisation yeah. early on. Yeah, and I think thinking about prioritizing too is important here because, like I said in my low, um, you know, I'm seeing my students a lot less. So what do I want to prioritize in my classroom? Do I want my kids playing instruments? Absolutely. It's very important. I know it's engaging and it's just an extension in my world of all the beautiful things we're learning. But if I'm spending the bulk of my time teaching my kids, you know, how to hold mallets and, and set up an ORF ensemble and all this stuff, 
that's all very lovely, but then I've prioritized that over singing, over music, Western notation, music literacy, understanding, you know, there's just, if you're going to prioritize one thing, you're deprioritizing in other things. So yes. um, just also something to think about is time and what do you want to focus on? Exactly. And, and, you know, it's interesting because when I first started teaching music, because I didn't have any training, I was more at a loss of, well, what do I do with these students? And what do I do with these instruments? And you had this, or I had this feeling of like aimlessness of, wow, I'm not sure. I just want them to love music. So we'll just do all these musical things. Um, I feel like my first three years of teaching was like that because I did not have any training. Yeah. Now that I have had some training and this you hit upon in your low, the, the conundrum is, oh my gosh, I don't have enough time with students mm -hmm. for them to get all of the things that I really want them to experience musically. And you're right. It comes down to, to priorities. And early on in my teaching, before I had any training at all, I found myself getting tied up in knots about like that exact same thing. I, I'm spending this time about how to hold mallets. I'm spending so much time about like teaching them these intricate parts of this ORF arrangement. And I'm not sure I even like this arrangement. <laughs> I'm not sure if the students like this arrangement. And, you know, I, I really just went around in circles of like, what am I doing? What's the point? And this is me getting off on another tangent again, but yes, you have to, if you prioritize one thing, you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. Right. And so that's, I, I value having a philosophy where I know exactly what I value and that's going to take precedent. And um, yes, but, but instruments are a lovely thing. Um, one of my other big things that I've noticed throughout my career that is, it's not concerning. It just is what it is. When I put students on instruments, the singing goes away. The mm -hmm. chanting goes away. The internalization of the the lyrics the the thing goes away that's not always bad especially if you're doing an instrumental piece that has no um lyrics or chanting to it but developmentally for most of my students that's concerning because well it, it makes sense because they have to focus on the instrument playing and yeah. that's a whole skill that is separate from the um, internalizing the music and reading, writing, composing. And that, that frustrated me early on until I really thought about it and understood that that's developmentally appropriate. Even it's interesting because I know we talk about this often, Carrie, that even when I go to a workshop where there's instruments involved and a lot of music teachers, trained musicians go to instruments, they stop singing. Uh -huh. They stop chanting, right? Yeah, because we're focusing yeah. so much. Because they're focusing on that. And I remember as a music student in my undergrad who um, was talking to me about piano and singing. And and my voice teacher said, well, you know what? If you're going to play piano, just play. If you're going to sing, just sing. Because as soon as you start singing and playing at the same time, the playing will take over your focus and concentration. Yeah. And I want you to worry about one instrument at a time. Totally. Yeah. And then that kind of leads us into like 
being purposeful then about the times where we include the instruments and being Kodai inspired teachers, I know I have a sequence, Tanya, do you have a sequence of kind of how and when and why the instruments are introduced? Well, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So do you want me just to, I'll just quickly kind of talk about mine and then you can Go. compare it yes. to yours. So for me, like if I'm thinking about K and one, first of all, we're going to do a lot with the non-pitched percussion first, and we're yes. tying a lot into comparatives, um, learning about the comparatives, using, you know, our sticks to play loud, our sticks to play soft, you know, all those types of things, um, using barred instruments then to explore going higher and lower, and then in, you know, isolating specific bars that are high sounding and low sounding um and then lots of steady beat work so playing a bordoon um on you know a d and an a so no i'm not sitting here explaining to my children we're playing a do in a cell right now you know or whatever we're just playing a bordoon while we're singing a song in on you know to practice steady beat that's what i'm focusing them on as we get into learning about specific intervallic relationships barred instruments are great for that so i'm using barred instruments in first second and beyond to play so me patterns so me la patterns including do and i really don't start layering like real ensemble-y stuff until second grade because that's when we've also learned about what an ostinato is so then we can play various little either rhythmic or melodic ostinati on the instruments so i do some really basic um, ensembles starting in second grade and then you know layering them more difficulty up and then i also am focusing on improvisation but within like a certain tone set so i'll set up the barred instruments in the pentatonic tone set in second grade once we know what the pentatonic tone set is not to say that you couldn't do these experiences early on but again i think this is the difference between an orph inspired classroom versus a coda inspired classroom is they know what the pentatone is they don't they know what do re mi so la is by the end of second grade hopefully if i've gotten there and so we've been singing and experiencing lots of music with the pentatone. So then playing and improvising patterns is going to happen. And then the other thing I'll mention, and then I'll let you talk, because I know you have so much to say too, is about, you know, oftentimes these ensembles and these improvisations are directly tied to the song literature that we're working on. We build or I find a source, and we'll talk more about sources later, that has a beautiful ensemble for Let Us Chase the Squirrel. And we've been singing Let Us Chase the Squirrel, and now we have an ensemble to support it. We're going to improvise a B section to Rocky Mountain because that's a song we've been working on. So now they're going to improvise a pentatonic melody for eight beats. And then we go back to singing Rocky Mountain. So all of these um, experiences are almost always tied into song literature that we've been singing and playing and experiencing in other ways. Yep. Anything to add to that, Tanya? Well, same. Um, this is also my approach where you mentioned using the small percussion first and then bringing in the bard instruments, always attaching it or nearly always attaching it to song literature that they know really well. Really, the only thing I would add is that I do a lot of work with timbre in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, where we just pull out the understanding of, well, you can tell the difference between this jingle and um, the egg shaker. So that whole awareness and fine tuning their listening um, is wonderful things to do with instruments. Uh, I would also add that I'm a big fan of classroom sets of things yeah. um, where I do 
have lessons where we have like three students who are playing claves and three students are playing this other instrument. I at first approach it with everybody gets an egg shaker. Everybody gets rhythm sticks. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is it takes away this whole like, well, I want that instrument and I didn't get that. I didn't get a triangle. So I am very upset and right. So it takes away that whole like, well, we're all playing the same instruments. Um, if we're all playing the same instrument and we're playing the same part, then it is much more accessible for students to get it right. If they've got, you know, oh, half of us are playing rhythm sticks and the other half are playing triangles and I'm a triangle. Look at all these other people who are playing when I'm supposed to be playing. So they have better success rate that mm -hmm. way. Um, also, honestly, just for your own sanity, um, in the music room, I, I tell you, a classroom full of triangles is a lot different feeling than a classroom full of five hand drums plus a ratchet plus three claves plus five tambourines plus. I mean, honestly, I that just I, I tried. I did a lot of that early on in my career where it was like, oh, we get to explore so many instruments and we'll do them all at the same time and. Um, even though they had different parts, they didn't play their different parts correctly. And it was chaos. It felt chaotic to me. Yeah. Yeah. I do the same. And I kind of have a rule that like anytime I'm going to do like a sound story, like we're going on a bear hunt, each part of the story, you know, is a different instrument. All of those instruments I've introduced previously, whole class mm -hmm. first. It's kind of like yes. doing stations, right? Like yeah. anytime I do stations, it's something we've done whole group first. And now we're putting it into different parts where we're playing different parts throughout the thing. Um, exactly. But it's like, oh, if I haven't introduced those triangles yet to the whole class, this is how you hold a triangle, da, 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 then we're not going to do it in the sound story because I don't want to have to do that for six different instruments, right? Right, which is why that would be something, whereas when I started teaching, that would be something that I would do first is like, ooh, here's all these awesome different instruments. And I would take way too long to go through and say, here's how you hold the triangle. Oh, and if you get the guido, here's how you hold that. Yeah. I would take too long. They would tune out. And that would be often my very first experience I would give them on instruments. And yeah, it would be, it would be just too much overwhelming. Yeah. And I do like them knowing how to hold the guiro without sticking the stick in the finger holes, you know, and me stressing <laughs> out over that. Um, so do I have a class set of guiros? No, I do not. But when I do introduce that, um, it's just that, that I'm introducing. Mm -hmm. And then I do have like five of them. And then those kids do get to explore that. And, and yeah, you mentioned stations. That's an excellent way also um, for kids to practice something really, really simple on an instrument and have a variety of instruments, but not have it be overpowering. So I have done stations where there's only one station where they get different instruments and they're playing specific rhythms or maybe the rhythm of a song or a chant that they know really well, or maybe the steady beat and these other instruments play the rhythm. And it's a lot more um, pleasing overall if it's just limited to that one station. Yeah. And also, I mean, we've done a whole thing on stations, um, a whole episode on stations, but whenever you're doing stations, you really don't want to have more than two at the most stations where they are playing instruments because the sound competes with each other. 
100%. And you want to space those accordingly as well, because the kids can't hear. And if they're supposed to be decoding patterns from the Mimeo board or the smart board, plus there's instruments over there, plus there's some Bard instruments over here, it's just, they, they'll just get frustrated. Yep. Yep. 100%. Yeah. So shall we um, talk about how they, we store instruments, how we acquire instruments, how, yeah. how they're stored? Um, did you have more to say about the use? No, no, that's, I think that leads us right into storage and then setting them up, you know, to, to be used specifically during a lesson. So, I mean, obviously storage depends on your room and I've had a wide variety in my very first job. I was so spoiled and I didn't even realize it. I had a huge room and it was very long. So like the front half of the classroom, I had risers where we sat and we did things looking at the board. Then I had a whole like middle area with a rug and then that was like our movement circle space. And then I had more room in the back of the room where I had kind of little ORF stations set up where the instruments were on the floor in rows. And then we could pull in all the other extra instruments, you know, bass bars, non-pitch percussion that were tucked away in cabinets. And so I was so lucky to have like a designated ORF space in that classroom. Um, I've not had that since. So ORF instruments, uh, barred instruments are stored either in like in a walk-in closet or in large cupboards. And I have to get them out as I need them, put away when I'm done. Because if I've got them out at the start of the lesson, that's all we're doing for the whole lesson. So it's about finding that balance between, yes, I want them out and accessible as much as possible, but not to sacrifice movement space and game playing space and all that kind of stuff. Um, Tanya, what's, what's your situation now? You've got those beautiful rolling carts, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm, I am very lucky. My school where I'm at now does have um, one instrument for every kid. So I, I did this the other day with third grade. Every kid was at a, their own barred instrument and they are all on carts. Um, and I'm very, very lucky to have that now. The school that I was at before, I did not quite have a classroom set. I probably had like half, half the class could be on instruments, but I would double them up and that's helpful as well. Um, but I started collecting carts over at my other school. So every year uh, I just would buy two more carts because I really, it was really a lot to take instruments off of a shelf in a cabinet and set them up and have kids sit and have to talk about not stepping out. Boy, that would stress me out. The whole like walking over, stepping over an instrument mm -hmm. just used to drive me nuts um, establishing that. And whenever I would set up instruments on the floor like that, I would have to make sure that my lesson plans included that, well, if third grade's going to instruments, then fourth grade's going to instruments and fifth grade's going to instruments because they are out and we're going to capitalize on these instruments being out because I don't have the time. I don't have the manpower to go in, out, in, out, in, out. Right. Yep. And I know music teachers who have said, well, I just have those third graders help me clean it up. I don't want to take that time. Honestly, I want our time to be used musically. Um, if, if, I, if I worked on a system and we practiced it, then perhaps, but it just seemed like too much, too much extra. So carts are the way to go. If I had to do it all over again and rebuild, I would make sure every time I bought an orf instrument or excuse me, bard instrument, I would buy a cart to put it on. 
I am. Right. Which is yeah. lovely if you have the space, but it, like in yes. my room, I don't if have space don't... to put the carts. So. Right. So my carts, they live in front of cabinets. Right. Um, but then I also have a walk-in closet Ugh. that is full of not cart stuff, but other stuff. It's got the huge sound system with huge speakers. It's got some other things, some tinkling poles, some props, lots of props, lots of um, set pieces that um, I haven't figured out what to do with. But I also have some side, uh, my, my room is a stage. I have some tucked away areas in the wings right. where I have, um, gosh, I can fit nine rolly carts of instruments in the wings on one side. That's cool. So that that's really handy. Uh, so yeah, if I was in a smaller room that I could see that being an issue, I would still try to figure out a way to put most of the instruments on carts. Um, yeah, putting them on in shelves, that that works too. It's just the, ugh, I, I still struggle with my glockenspiels because my glockenspiels aren't, aren't on any kind of carts. And I'm, I'm carted out. I don't have any more room. Like right, I, right. all my real estate is taken up. So I've got, you know, about 10 right in front of the, the, um, cab, the cabinets behind where kids sit and I can roll them out as needed. And the kids, they get pretty quick on figuring out how to park the instruments. Um, but yeah, having a smaller room, I would still try to do some carts, but I guess you you just can't avoid sometimes having kids sit on floor on the floor and bringing out the instruments and all of that. Tell me about your mallet situation. Do you have the mallets on the carts ready to go or do you store them separately? I've stored them separately. I have them in a big orange, um, you know, stored, bought Home Depot bucket. I have them on in a big bucket and the reason for that is when kids do go to instruments, if we are, if I am having them take off bars, I want them to do that without mallets in their hands. Yeah. Um, and I let them uh, have some time to just tap at the bars before I hand out the bars. And the other reason I'm not a fan of having, because I used to have all the mallets on top of the instruments or try to attach them somehow. I know that those pencil holders will work well for um, some people where they have the, the pencil holders that have adhesive on the back that you can stick on the instrument and put the mallets in there like pencils, which ah. is a beautiful thing. But the other problem I've noticed is that even when it's not necessarily music class time, people will come in, grab the mallets and just go to town. Yep. Yep. And I don't like that. Yeah. So mallets are separate from the bard instruments until it's time to play. Plus yeah. also I want to make sure specific mallets go with specific instruments. And I've noticed that whenever I've tried to keep, okay, well, the rubber headed mallets are going to go with these metallophones, but then they'll get changed up yeah. and we'll have these hard rubber, um, mallet heads clanking against the metal i'm not a fan um so yeah this is a way where i can control all that it takes me a couple extra minutes to go ahead and pass out mallets um and that's, that's okay that yeah and here's what i did at my other school which worked really well and i just haven't had the time i haven't done it is um i used to have uh washi tape 
that I would put, I have like this blue and white washi tape and I would put just a little piece of that on an instrument. And then the mallets that correlate with those would also have them wrapped around, not the entire stick of the mallet, but just a little bit. And so I would have several instruments like, oh, all the xylophones have the blue and white washi tape and all the mallets that would go with those xylophones have the blue and white washi tape. And so in that way, kids could match up. If I had kids going and getting the mallets, I'd just say, make sure the washi tape pattern matches what's on your instrument. And that worked really well. Yeah. That's, I need to do that at my new, new to me school too. Yeah. And I need to do that. And I just haven't done it. Yeah. And then when it comes to non-pitch percussion, I'm sure you and I are of similar mindset that of course you just want to have things grouped and organized in a container that you can Mm -hmm. just grab and go. So all my egg shakers are in one bucket and I grab and go. Um, I'm a big fan of, you know, labeling things, especially if they're visible in the classroom. Like if they're on open shelving, it just looks nice if they're labeled. I'll tell you right now, because they're all in cabinets that close, they're not labeled and they're not very pretty, but they're, (laughs) they're at least in buckets of like-minded instruments and then when it comes to things where I don't have a class set and I'm combining them I know there's different schools of thought on this some people um do it by like type like woods together metals together I like to organize them by how they're played so things that are um struck or hit things that you shake things that you scrape um just because I like to do a lesson on that when like you mentioned timbre um but you could totally do it either way I see benefits for either way um yes I have them organized that way as well. Um, except I do pull out the ones that ring specifically. Ring. Right. So I do have like, here's instruments that you shake, here's instruments that you scrape, and here's instruments that ring because it's yeah. just a totally different sound. It's different timbre. than just a tap. I'm yeah. Sure. I want my bell trees and my triangles to be separated out from the sand blocks and, and that kind of thing. And I do have um, tubs that have lids And I did take the time to label those very nicely and they are in closed cabinets, but I like being able to open it up and go, oh, look, here's some pictures because my labels now, they all have pictures. I just went to West Music and, you know, did a bunch of um, cropping and pasting images just so I can look over there from, or I could be across the room if the door is open and go, oh, look, there are the egg shakers. And it's also good for students because I could say to a a second grader, open up the cabinet, grab the box with egg shakers. Hmm. You don't even have to look inside. Here's a big old picture of egg shakers. I like the whole idea of just giving kids more, you know, capacity to get things out and put them away and having everything labeled is a way to do it for sure. Yes. And also I duplicated those labels that I put on the boxes and I made them smaller and I actually taped those on the outside of the cabinet oh that's smart so you know which so because all the cabinets look exactly alike and i've got a whole wall full of them so it's nice to go okay well in that one i know i've got the egg shakers the rhythm sticks the triangles because i see that picture that is the exact same label inside oh very smart i like that idea well i took you know and and it's gonna it's paying off for years it will pay off for years so to take that kind of time it was time consuming to do that i'm glad i did that but then you know other things have suffered like haven't taped up the mallets but that's okay yeah yeah well let's talk then 
about then we kind of alluded to this a little bit like when in the lesson do the instruments come out how long are they out so let's just say for an example if you were doing an orf instrument with third graders based on the song tidio or you know a song that you've been singing with with your third graders and you are going to build a little orf ensemble with them are the instruments already out for the students come in or are you getting them out while they're doing something how do your carts work with that well, that's funny that you mentioned Tidio because um, we did just play instruments with <laughs> Tidio last week. Um, they are pushed against the cabinets until we need to play them. <clears throat> and then I roll them out. It doesn't take much, but they make an arc. Right. So it cuts off some of the room. Yeah. So if I'm doing something and I usually am, that involves a lot of movement before we get out the instruments, then I don't have to worry about someone like, you know, tripping over a xylophone or running into a metallophone. Um, I just have the kids roll them out. The very, very first time in the school year, I will have them turn around and say, okay, look, here's the bass xylophone. It goes up against this cabinet. If I guess if I was really crafty, what I could do is like mark exactly where they're parked, but I, it's just not worth it right now to me. Um, but so if you play this bass xylophone, you will park it in front of this cabinet, the one with the egg shakers, for example. And but right now to play it, I'm going to pull it out and it's going to go tilted a little bit this way. And um, so the very first time I show the kids as I'm pulling them out to make that arc of my carts, uh, of the instruments on the carts, um, as I'm doing it, I show them where things go. Uh, if it was younger than third grade, then I would probably have them do something else as I'm pulling them out and putting them in that formation. Right now I have a student teacher, so it's been really great. because oh, well, that's true. Very, she's very intuitive. She's like, okay, well, we're, we're doing this chant and I know it comes next. And she just starts going and she's just pulling things out. That's Kids awesome. turn around and there they are ready to go. Um, but that'll be me later. And I have definitely had lessons where I put in like a little two minute video to show loud and soft or something. And this is the time where I go around and pull out the instruments. Yeah. So the younger they are, the more I try to prepare them. But as we get into third grade on up, then this is something that they can be responsible for. Should sure. I just take a little bit of time to just show this is, and honestly at my school now, that's a lot easier. Um, I don't know what exactly it is that the students are able to just see it once and then do it. And I don't usually have um, an issue of kids not knowing where things go. And plus I have two of them on each instrument to start with right. on each barred instrument, right? So if you're clueless, maybe your partner knows what's going on. Right, right. Yeah. And how about you? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, again, because my room is small, um, I just don't have the luxury. I can't set them up ahead of time. And so, yeah, my go-to is planning something in the lesson that the kids are doing independently, whether it's they're doing a singing game that doesn't involve too much movement. So I can start putting the, like a seated singing game, um, like not a chase game or something like that, um, where I'm starting to get the instruments set up. I don't usually set them up like in a nice semicircle arc, like you mentioned, because I just don't have the room for it. We end up kind of creating like a circle or arrangement kind of thing where all the instruments are basically just pointed towards the middle of the room. Um, 
And I do usually have something visual on the board, so they just have to, like, turn and look at it, and then, you know, they play. Um, so, yeah, I'm typically getting instruments out while they're doing a seated singing game, or, you know, they might be working on a worksheet or something like that, and then I'm bringing the instruments out while they're working. Um, and for me, you know, I know we like that general rule of, like, minutes of an activity match you know the age of the student and that's a good rule of thumb this is definitely Except. where i break this <laughs> yeah. is definitely where i break that rule the most because i want bang for my buck i can't get the instruments out in every single lesson i'm not going to so if i'm getting the instruments out we're going to spend a longer amount of time on it um and like you said because for me i have enough instruments for every two kids to be sharing an instrument. We're switching back and forth and back and forth. So I want to make sure they have adequate time to play. So um, for me, like third grade and up, if we're getting instruments out, we're going to be working at them for probably a good 12 to 15 minutes. And then, you know, trying to move on to something else. Because there's also that if they're sitting at the instruments too long, then yeah, they're going to start messing around because we've just been sitting for too long at the instruments or whatnot. So mm -hmm. it does hold their intention. It is engaging, but only up to a certain point, just like all things. So then we got to change it up. So then, you know, as much as I love to end music classes, oftentimes with like one final singing game or dance or something, on days where I'm pulling out the bard instruments, that's typically gonna be the last thing we do for the day mm -hmm. because then that gives me time. I'm lucky in my schedule that I have um, 10 minutes between each of my classes. So then I don't feel like, well, if I've got the instruments out for fourth grade, I have to keep them for third. Like I'm not in that position. So then yeah. I do know that if I do the instruments at the end of class, I'll have time to put them away um, for the next class comes in. So that's- And that is so tricky because for years I had to do that. Yeah. And I mean, it really drives your planning and not always in a good way because it would be like, well, those glockenspiels are out. So I know third grade plays glockenspiels. Everybody plays glockenspiels. Yeah. Yeah. There was at my traveling school, there was this magical time where the room next to me was empty. And so I asked the principal, can that be a music room overflow room? Because this room was tiny. And she said yes. And we set up a whole ORF instrument room in a separate classroom. So I would tell the kids, here we go. We're traveling to the instrument room. And the kids would get so excited. And we'd go in there and we'd play the instruments. Then we'd go back in the regular music room and play a game. It was so lovely. And then that went away real quick when they needed that room for something else. But it was beautiful exactly. while it lasted. So <laughs> um, can I ask you, because I want to answer this too, when you do bring out the instruments, let, let's say the bard instrument specifically, does everybody play or do you have times when only a few people play? It depends on what we're doing. So yeah, I mean, if it's like an improvisation activity, I do want everyone to have turn to play. If we're building an ensemble, I kind of want everyone to have a turn to play. But it's kind of like once we know that ensemble, there might be times where half of the class is doing the song in the game while the other half is doing the ensemble. And then in the next class, we switch it kind of a thing. Um, more times than not everybody's playing but there's certainly times or like if there's a an elimination style game where students are getting out in the game that's a good opportunity for them to go over and have a turn to play a bordoon or have a turn to play whatever and then the next kid gets out and they play and the next kid gets out and they play so it depends on what we're doing is that what you're gonna say <laughs> uh, yeah i was gonna say often the first time that we play it will not be everybody plays because it'll be an elimination type game or just some kind of um singing something in a circle where i just have like 
four or five or six kids who go over and they play something very simple like mm-hmm. a Bordune, like a steady beat. Um, and then that might be a class period where not everybody gets to play. Also, I've noticed on elimination games, it's tricky because you have kids that get out on purpose because they want to play, yes. right? Yes. So there's 100%. that issue as well. But then on the other hand, um, having all the kids play all at the same time, like we talked about before, the singing goes away, the chanting goes away. And so there's that danger as well. So I'm also a fan of having like half the classes on instruments. The other half of the, of the class is singing and moving around the room. Um, not necessarily a game, but maybe of movement thing. Or, or even, for me, yeah. the singers might also be like keeping a beat on like a hand drum or something. So they're still playing something, but it's simple and they're able to keep the singing going and they still feel like they're part of the instrumental ensemble, but they have a simpler part. And then next time right. we switch it kind of a thing. What I need to do more of, and I, I really want to do more of, is going beyond like doing actual ORF ensemble work, doing actual more than two parts, say, because it's the time that it takes to get everybody on track, to get everybody playing their part cohesively. That takes some serious time. And so whenever I've tried to add like even the most simple three-part thing, like maybe you have a group of kids who are just playing a steady beat on the lowered barred instruments. And then you have kids who are playing like a crossover, um, do, you know, do, so, do, so, do, so, do, so, like mm-hmm. something as simple as that. And then maybe adding glockenspiels like on the rest part, you know, yep. playing just like ding, ding, or just ding, whatever. Um, even that is challenging because yeah. You know, the the kids on the crossover pattern, they'll start rushing, they won't stay together. And then you are taking a lot of time working on ensemble stuff, Mm -hmm. which is definitely worth doing. But then you have to, you know, think about, okay, well, do I have another group of kids who are just twiddling their thumbs because they're the the singers? Um, Do I have this group of kids? Like you're you're working on, on parts. Yep. You're working on, you're doing sectionals basically. Yeah. It's the same reason why it's hard to teach two or three part choir music or anything else along those lines. So, hey, that's a good segue then to talk about because I'm also not going to sit here and have a ton of time to write these ensembles. Although for me, oftentimes when I'm craning ensembles in my brain, it's often like an ostinati, a simple ostinati, or like taking a part from a song and turning that to an ostinati, you know. Exactly. But all that to say, there are some really great resources out there that, especially if you are a Kodai-inspired teacher coming at Bard Instruments, um, these are great resources because they're specifically resources that pull from folk music. That's the whole point, is that these ensembles were created all around folk songs that we use all the time. So we'll put all these in the show notes, but I'll list a couple and then Tanya can list a couple. Um, one caveat for all of these resources is that it's, these have been published for a while now. And I think pretty much all of them have uh, song literature that many of us have chosen not to do in our classroom anymore because of historical references or things that could be potentially be harmful to um, students. So just, you know, do your homework, look carefully at the songs. And just know that because we're recommending these books doesn't mean we're recommending every single song within these books. So right, 
Right. All that to say, two of my favorites are there. Are, well, this is a collection. There's a collection of books called the Orf Source Books, and they're by Denise Gagne. And they're specifically to go with the music play curriculum, which used to be an actual book curriculum before now it is online and it is a fabulous resource. But these books in themselves are great, and there's multiple volumes of them because they are sequenced according to commonly used Kodai inspired sequence as far as melodic concepts, starting with So and Me and La and and moving into Do and the Pentatone and then extending it and yada, yada, yada. So ORF source books are really great. And then there's another book called All Around the Buttercup, which is similar by Ruth Boschkoff, again, and it's folk songs that have been arranged for ORF instruments. And those are some of my favorites. What about you, Tanya? Yes. Um, well, a couple that I have gone back to over and over again are Strike It Rich. That's for younger students, like K1, 2, mostly first and second. And that is uh, Kariski and Delelis, who are the wonderful ORF duo from Las Vegas, who are um, game plan was their eventual huge big curriculum. Uh, so Strike It Rich also by them is as American as Apple Pie, which is more for older kids. And you'll see some familiar folk songs in as American as Apple Pie. And there's a couple in there that I would choose not to do any longer, but um, they've got some some good arrangements. Um, Strike It Rich for the younger ones has a lot of chance that you then bring in instruments too and a lot of these i modify just for my own students oh, yeah. and i don't often go as deep as their arrangements are um, because of that whole time factor but it's a great jumping off point and really accessible and you're able to read it and make sense of it it's not like you require a youtube video to go and and show you how to do it but those are also Wonderful resources. Another resource that I didn't write that down here that I would mention is that David Rao from Make Moments Matter does a Monday night um, video that I often watch when I'm making dinner. And he talks about um, uh, specifically what he's doing in every grade or he'll focus on a specific grade, but he often talks about specific ORF instrument inclusion that he does. Uh, and that's great because I often think, wow, if I was a very beginning teacher and I was like, oh my gosh, not sure what to do with instruments, I would be watching David because he just, he often brings in a xylophone and says, okay, so I have the students do this and here is how I approach it and here's how I scaffold it. And so that's just really great for anybody who was like, I don't know how to start. Yeah, I agree. So now it is time for our segment called Know Better, Do Better, where we rethink some literature or a practice or anything in our classroom to be more welcoming. Culturally responsive and yeah, welcoming that, and all, creating all a, yes. Okay, Tanya, what do you want to talk about? Okay. Um, once upon a time, back in 2018, back on episode number eight, we talked about recorders. Oh my gosh. 2018, that sounds so long ago. Man. I know. <laughs> Some of you listening, I don't know. Maybe you were in college. Maybe you were not. I don't know. Doesn't matter. We okay. were teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back in 2018, when we talked about recorders, I don't, 
I'd have to, li- I didn't have not listened to that episode. I will, you know, since 2018. Um, but recorder karate, I want to talk about recorder karate. Do it. Well, um, I have been teaching recorders. I, well, I did teach recorders this past year after taking a hiatus due to COVID, which many people did, most people did, but I did not do recorder karate. And um, let me let me back up and explain what ca- recorder karate is. Um, it was not created by the ma- magazine Music K8, by the way, even though they have a whole recorder karate program. And these days, when you mention recorder karate, people think that it means a very specific program of leveled recorder pieces that an individual student plays and then receives these recorder in parentheses belts that they tie on the bottom of their recorder to show and you know th- to demonstrate that oh I've reached this level in my recorder plane and um, the use of the word karate is what I want to focus in on because using the term recorder karate I think really is cultural appropriation right. Um, when we are liking it to a martial art that is very important to specific cultures, um, the whole idea of recorder karate, um, we have to think about like, is, is that appropriate to use the term karate? And I was looking through some comments that people were making on Facebook about recorder karate and just rethinking the title of it. Um, the reason I chose not to do any kind of leveled recorder earn belt system last year is because I just wanted to get back to playing recorders in a whole group way where kids really felt excited and jazzed about being able to use their musical literacy and their learnings on an instrument and not necessarily geared towards competition. And I am better than my classmates because I have earned these belts and that kid's only earned one belt, but that other kid's earned their black belt. Like this whole idea of competition has been problematic in my music classroom in the past where kids are motivated, but for the wrong reasons, I thought, or I felt. So that's why I stepped away this past year is just to say, okay, been a couple of years since we've done recorder. I'm at a brand new school now. Let's just see how it goes if we are just using it as a musical extension um, and playing whole group and not worried about um, the whole competition aspect. Also, I noticed it was taking a lot of time in my class for kids to test for belts. And that was time that could have been better of us all playing you know, better used with everybody playing. But if I were to go back to record a karate, well, first of all, I've always used my own tiered system. Well, first of all, that's second of all. First of all, I'm not going to call it recorder karate anymore. I've heard different terms used like uh, rainbow recorders or recorder level up. Uh, We don't need to use the word karate necessarily Mm -hmm. um, because that is cultural appropriation. And something that came up in my reading of comments is power, privilege, and profit. So if you want to determine if something is culturally appropriate, appropriating, um, think about, does it hold power over group? Does it show privilege? 
and is someone profiting from it that are not from the culture? And I think the term recorder karate definitely fits that bill because um, if you look at the Music K8 materials, if we're talking about a specific branded recorder karate program, um, you know, they show kids in dojos and they use a specific font that is, quote, Asian. And so there's really no connection between kids playing harder and harder recorder pieces and the idea of karate as martial arts and part of a culture. So, you know, I'm not going to get into like what I'll do instead in recorder because we could record a whole thing about another episode about recorders since it's been so long, Carrie. But all that to say, if I do revisit any kind of leveled recorder system, I'm going to call it rainbow recorders or recorder level up or recorder power up or um, I don't know, recorder, well, boy, it could be anything. Recorder um, uh, master, recorder, um, recorder wins, any of that. Okay. (laughs) No, it's just all food for thought because I, I was doing recorder karate last year and I guess I hear you, and when I'm thinking about the power, privilege, and profit thing, you know, you know, and I don't want to make excuses for myself or anyone else, but I'm like, well, if I'm not using the Music K8 program, and I'm just using the idea of recorder karate, I'm calling it recorder karate, but I'm doing my own songs, mm-hmm. and, you know, still using the colors, the traditional colors of the belts, is that still appropriation? Because who's profiting off of it? Well, the only person who's profiting off of it are the people who make the rubber band loom rubber bands that I buy for the, the yeah. belts. Um, yes, there's privilege in that I hold privilege over, you know, as being a white woman. I don't know. And I don't use the images. I know what you're talking about. I I don't like those images. I mean, they're kind of likened to the whole big headed children images, which I've always tr- struggled with anyways. So no, I don't use any of those images. I just, the only thing I do is I just call a recorder karate and I tell them these are the order of the belts that you're going to earn. Um, as far as like testing goes, I use do a lot of whole group testing early on anyways, where like everybody earns their belt and I'm just not persnickety. I don't make kids test individually for me for the first belts that we do in third grade. I just do it whole group and I watch them and I give them a belt, but I they still get individual grades in my grade book because, you know, or I might test them like five kids at a time. Um, but I try not to make it be super competitive because it's like everyone's getting them. And then right. in fourth grade, I was using Seesaw a lot where students were recording. And, oh, yes. I mean, and I've done that too through Seesaw. I guess what I really should have started with is separating the idea of the label recorder karate from the whole idea of the program and what that means. And I don't mean specifically the KA program, but just the whole idea of playing this piece nearly perfectly and earning this thing attached to it. So these are two separate ideas. Right. I guess what I really want to focus on and what I should have led with was the label of recorder karate, whether or not you are using that branded music K8 label or whether you're doing 
your own recorded karate and using the specific colors and using specific pieces and whether it's kids play in small groups, solo or whole groups. Um, so that's a whole other thing. Right. But the label recorder karate, to me at this point, after, you know, thinking through it, why does it have to be called recorder karate? Because that whole idea of a martial arts um, being attached to kids playing more difficult pieces it doesn't have to be attached there's there's no there's no reason why the name karate has to be attached to the idea of kids leveling up well that's what it i mean that's exactly what it is i think the original intent which makes sense is that you know like you level up in karate that you progress through and you get you know so it's the idea of the progression of skills right we're progressing in our skills of the recorder by playing more difficult pieces um but i do understand a different system you know we could just hey i'm a recorder freshman and you're a recorder sophomore and there's a recorder junior and and he's a recorder senior like i mean we could use any kind of tiered system we could right. talk about your o level recorders and your you know a level recorders i mean there's if you want to tier a system there's other ways to do it it doesn't sure. necessarily have to be focusing in on this idea of a martial arts that might be important to a specific culture and taking that idea and just changing it up. I appreciate you bringing that up because I honestly hadn't thought of it that way. And I'm definitely thinking right now, how can I phase out of it? We all want to know how to work smarter, not harder. And Carrie's going to give us a little tip that will move us in that direction. Yeah, it's so small and probably something you already do, as we always say. But okay, so this is just a reminder when you are doing something with your students digitally, but inevitably, you know, you always have kids who show up in your room with a Chromebook that is dead or no Chromebook at all, or they can't remember their login and whatever. So this is just a reminder that to me, it is worth the time that when I know I'm going to be assigning a digital something that I make generally five hard copies of it. So if it's Jamboard, I just print that slide. If it's a Seesaw assignment, there's a little place where you can click print assignment and you can print the template that they're going to be writing on. Um, If it's a Google Doc, I print a hard copy of that. And I just print five of them. When I make my lesson plan, I print five of them and I stick them in a drawer and they're there. Most of the time I don't have to use them, but occasionally I do. So for example, I had a girl who just came in and she didn't have her Chromebook charged and she said her charger was broken. By the time she went down to the library to get a loaner Chromebook and came back, we would have been done with the assignment. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and judge kids and penalize kids for the fact that their technology isn't ready. Yes, if it's the same kid over and over and over again, that's a conversation you can have between that student and their family to help them be better prepared. But we all have our days. So I don't judge. I just give them the hard copy and I say, here you go. Just do it hard copy this time. To me, that's worth it. Then like in the spot being like, uh, okay, well, why don't you partner up with so-and-so or worse yet, just sit there and do nothing, which doesn't feel good to the kid or to me. So it sounds like more work, but I think in the end, in the long run, it's worth it, especially if the activity you're doing is an actual assessment. 
like where kids are composing or doing something, you want to make sure you have work for that kid. You don't want to assign it as homework. So I print five copies of hard copy of anything I'm doing digitally, stick them in a drawer, and then we use them as we need them. Good idea. Yes. So now it's time for our CODA section where we recommend something personal or professional we're recommending or <laughs> enjoying in our spare time. Haha, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Not a lot of spare time in Tanya's world or my world, but less less in yours, right, Tanya? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, All right. Yeah. So what's something? You've got to have something. <laughs> sleep. I say sleep is good. Everyone Yay. should try it out. Uh, no. Well, yes. But um, so one of the podcasts I listened to that I've mentioned before called 10% Happier, you know, I have bought too many books after listening to someone on 10% Happier. And so that's what I'm going to recommend is this book by Ingrid Fattel Lee called Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And I have just barely started it, but it's very engaging. And she talks about, you know, simple things to be joyful about the difference between joyfulness and happiness and, you know, just everyday stuff. Um, like she starts off talking about colors that produce more joy and you know all those things and there you go um so far so good i'm oh. enjoying it am i incorporating any of these things as i sit in my brown painted room looking at all the clutter not yet no but the idea is germinating the idea <laughs> nice yes so that's what i'm enjoying and carrie all right. Um, I've been watching the third season of Only Murders in the Building and, you know, not shocking to say that I like this show, but I will say I didn't love season two of this show. Not sure how you felt about it. Tanya. I, I fell asleep too many times. And then by the end, I didn't know what was going on because yeah. I didn't know what's going on, but I really enjoyed this season. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, first of all, all the music theater references, totally. the cast, I mean, you've got Meryl Streep and Paul Rudd, what more do you want? It's fantastic. And I mean, I laughed out loud because um, in one of the episodes, I can't remember which one it was, um, was it the, I think it was the Tina Fey character was talking to the Selena Gomez character about her podcast. Oh, no, no, no. It was the the cute, the cute, really handsome man from Grey's Anatomy, Jesse something. Anyways. Tobert? You know huh? To is it Tobert? Topper, Topper, Topert, Topert, like Robert with a T. He, okay, so he says to the Selena Gomez character, like, I know your podcast. I've been listening to it. Didn't like season two as much as season one. And I just laughed out loud because I'm positive that must be a reference to the fact that the second oh. season of the show they recognized was not as good as season one which is a very normal problem to have anyways all that to say if you're like me and you didn't love season two i mean it was fine i just didn't love it um give season three a chance because it is i'm only, I'm only like three or four episodes in um but i love it so far it's really really me too. we're all caught up we have to wait for the next one to drop Oh, I'm not quite there, but I'll catch up soon, I'm sure, because it's really good. It's funny.
We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. And we always appreciate folks buying us a coffee, so look for that link on our show notes and on our Facebook page. Until next time, this is Carrie. And this is Tanya wishing you happy musicking.